Sometimes the house was empty when I finally returned home. Other times my wife would feed me. It was good of her, for I didn't feed myself with anything wholesome. I say it was good of her, though the seeds of madness or wisdom that lay writhing in my brain have ripped her far from anything resembling good. I brought my twisted perceptions into my home with me. Like the bakery, no longer was this a place of safety or simplicity. In the night, I would wake. Sweating at the shuffle and tentative creak of footsteps in the kitchen, I would fly downstairs raging like a being twice my size, or so I hoped, to find the place empty, my wife half weeping in fear and adrenaline. I would hear them again and again, every night, on the stair, outside my window, at my bedside. I forewent sleep and lay listening, or creeping through the rooms, finding nothing but an echo, and the ghost of a scent, rich and choking, like men's cologne. I frightened my wife, not least with the paranoid, suspicious disbelief that she could not hear and smell what I did. One evening, in stupefied, speechless horror, I cringed from her, as I saw someone else's hands, large, pale, reddened, pressing the hook and eye as I gently unclasped the neckline of her dress. She packed and left the next day. I lived with the man. His footsteps became familiar. His cologne I knew. And I shuddered at the memory of his hands, superimposed upon a world, a woman, I thought I knew. My story is almost over. It has reached its final day. Tomorrow, Richard Fay, the writer, will be born, barefaced and ugly. He will write black, hissing, smoldering, ugly words, but not before this final day. I visited William's grave in the early morning. The perfumed man had not let me sleep once again. I left him the house. He seemed to know his way around. William's granite eye had not changed to me. The wielder of the garish paintbrush who ran rampant through my brain slept now. Perhaps he was content with ruining my night. Or perhaps the pigment of death leached through even his brightest colors. I lay my dark hand on the light slab, as yet untouched by the soot in the air or by nature's darkening eaters of stone. Cass was absent when I reached the steps of the cathedral. The lurid green glow off the bell tower lit up the puddles in the pitted marble where she usually sat like pools of bile from the starving. There, not tucked in its usual cranny, and sodden from the omnipresent rainwater, I saw her book, limp and ragged. Half expecting the beggar to snarl from the shadows, I tentatively reached out for it, dragging its soggy bulk towards me with a thumb and forefinger. I soon decided that it was salvageable, 
The outer pages needed several hours by the fire, but the inner ones were merely damp, as they had ever been, I suspected. It was then I started, grunting and shuddering involuntarily at what I saw in my hands. English. English. The words leapt off the page at my sleep-deprived eyes, not Greek at all, but a language familiar to me. I scrambled from the stairs to the marble side of the putrid bell tower, clawing at the gap in the marble. It must be a different text. But no other coverless, moldy book appeared. I flipped the sodden half-book over and peered at the first page. Sure enough, to my horror, it read, Book Fourteen. Below, the text began. He went up from the cove through wooded ground, taking a stony trail into the high hills where the swineherd lived, according to Athena. It was impossible. My brain balked at it, and yet the green glow that cast a putrid shine to every page was also impossible. So too was the invisible man who shared what was once my family's home. My mind had come to keep company, with the impossible. I crouched in the wet and turned the pages of Cass's half-book, noticing the dirty smears at the bottom corner of each page. Small, blackened, moldy fingers had pressed these pages often as I did now. I recognized the text. Under my fingers, Odysseus spoke his wily, deceitful poetry, beautiful and elusive and left a victorious trail of blood and lies back to his throne and queen. Had I created this for myself? Was my mind projecting coherence onto the insane ramblings of the world, attempting to anchor itself in something familiar? For the first time, I gave tentative space to the idea that before, in the midst of my distracted, expectant happiness, before the rain soaked into my bones, before my son slipped from me, before I had missed something. I had not looked closely enough at the book, at the church, at my customers. It is the madman's last grasp at sanity to believe it is he, not everyone else, who sees the world. The last grasp before the brink and the tumble. I heard a scuffling then. Not close. In fact, it was strange indeed that I should hear a particular scuffling above the usual morning noise of the square. The grey ceiling of clouds seemed higher today, and the increased light had encouraged people to emerge, if only in weak, bundled rivulets. A pigeon gurgled and cooed beside me, yet through it all permeated a scuffling noise. I rose and left the book. This is a source of some regret to me now, as, though I have tried, I have never found it again. I ventured away from St. Peter's Square into the watery, shadowed alleys surrounding creeping along the edges of the canals and forcing all but the bravest rats into the murky water. Ahead, 
the scuffling increased, and I began to hear raised voices, incoherent and androgynous. The canal curved away from me, and I turned a final corner into a lane, narrow, uneven, unremarkable from any other lane in this grey city. There was a restaurant, its awning shabby over an empty patio, and there were doors, sealed against the rain and raised on steps against the floods. There were also people, though even in the glowing gunmetal of the overcast sky I found it difficult to place their faces. They moved quickly, smoothly, violently. They were like blurred figures on the edges of my vision. I recognized one, then another, but turned to face them and they skittered away into anonymity. It was a mob I could hear and feel, but couldn't quite grasp, couldn't quite identify. There was anger there. I could feel that. There was pain, and laughter, and power, and adrenaline. There was fear and will and drive. It was bodiless, in the way that a hurricane is bodiless, and when it dissipated it did so into the streets and shops and houses without ceremony. I was left alone in the lane, wondering if I had ever been otherwise, or if my mind had truly begun to unhinge from reality. But if I couldn't see the storm, I could see what it had left behind. There was a figure, crushed, crumpled and discarded that lay in a stone trough that served as the gutter. It was not far from me, but passed easily as misplaced trash, unmoving and unsubstantial as it was. I knew immediately that it was her. I didn't know if I wanted to see. I reached out, tentatively, I must admit, for touching her, her darkness, her grime, was abhorrent. Perhaps she was dead. Perhaps they had killed her under the light of day. Her back was warm where I lay my hand on her. Human warmth seeped through the sticky, damp cloth, and I was suddenly gripped with disgust for my own reluctance. I turned her over, gently and held her head and shoulders in the crook of an elbow, so small and fragile did she seem. She looked up at me in silence before she died. They had done a clean job of it. There was no blood, no mess, nothing dramatic, just silence and an end. Her face relaxed into death's vacant, otherworldly peace as if she saw something far, far away, and I no longer concerned her. I realized then that she was beautiful, somehow, or at least wholesome in her ugliness, like a city pigeon or the hairy splay of a dandelion amongst roses. It was the year my son died, that I learned to write. After Cass's death, I became a success, by my own definition. I was not popular, but enough people bought and read my work that I could leave the bread-making to other lost souls. My prose was ugly and bare, 
my readers had their own reasons to cherish it. I myself wished from time to time that my pen could produce the flowering tendrils of Odysseus's return to Ithaca, but it did not. I'm not sure if the visions faded. To be honest, there came a day when I neglected to notice them, and from that day the world was as it was. Questions of my sanity became somehow unimportant, and now I approach something resembling not comfort, but a lonely sobriety. I am truly sober.